And today's scripture passage is again from the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew chapter 6. We'll be reading today from verse 1 through verse 4 and then skipping over to verses 16 through 18. So Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 4 and 16 through 18. Let's give our attention uh, and our affections over to our Lord as he speaks to us now in his word. Beware, the Lord Jesus says, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And then to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word um, that's been read to us. We, we, We know that your word is given to teach us, to train us in righteousness, to convict us, to show us where we can be more like Christ because of the gospel, not because of willpower, but because of the gospel. So Lord, keep us from any kind of pharisaical, white knuckle mindset that makes us think we just need to bear down more harder and work more harder. Instead, God, give us hearts that want to just trust you completely for our righteousness and live in light of that as lives of worship. Thank you, Father, that at faith we are counted 100% righteous, that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed into us completely, and now we can live based on that, not trying to earn it, but based on that. Lord, I pray that you would help me as we study through the Sermon on the Mount this morning to speak with precision and, Lord, conviction, but also with gentleness. God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now to superintend this entire time, that you would convict my heart of my sin, that you would speak through me. I I know, Lord, that I um, I have nothing to say without you, and so I pray that every word I say would be yours. I pray for my friends here this morning that you would come and gently show them their need for the gospel. Convict them where they need convicted. Lord, if there's anyone here that's far from you, that willingly or unwillingly would maybe start recognizing through this service that they don't know you or they have run far from you, that you would bring them back, restore them to right relationship with you, and teach them to hope in the gospel. 
Lord, I pray for all of us now as we go into your word that it would have its proper effect, that it would indeed engage not just our mind and our intellect, but our hearts and our emotions and our affections. May we walk out of here deeper worshipers of Jesus, not just more knowledgeable of the things of Christ. But God, would you come now and move in our lives and we'll give you the glory for it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been um, away from the Sermon on the Mount for a couple weeks, and so um, briefly, I want to bring us back into an idea of what's going on um, in the book of Matthew, in the Beatitudes. I'm sorry, not the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, Matthew wrote the book of Matthew, obviously, that's pretty easy to understand, and he wrote it primarily to a Jewish audience. Um, This Jewish audience um, was very familiar with the scriptures, and so as he's going through this sermon, um, he's presenting it to them in such a way, Matthew is writing the book and Jesus is presenting this in such a way that they, they all know that they have a good understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. So it's, it's no big deal for Jesus in this sermon or Matthew in his book to cite Old Testament scriptures and, and know that these people that are listening have an idea of what's going on. It's not like they're, they're Greeks or Gentiles and they have no working understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. So they'll cite them um, and, and point to things and, and they have an understanding. So we've seen that all throughout the, the birth narrative um, of Christ and even um, into beginning his ministry and Matthew is wanting to point them back to the Old Testament and look at the prophecies of the Old Testament and say, this man, Jesus, is the coming Messiah. He is the one that's, that's been told to us. Um, and as we get into the sermon here on the Mount, Christ really has um, gone into a little bit of a pattern. First, he opened up with the Beatitudes, and the, the Beatitudes are the gospel. Um, And he's teaching to us the Beatitudes, which is the gospel of the kingdom. We know it's the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew's really wanted to make sure we see this in 423, where he says that he went about teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so he's not just, it it would be really um, problematic if you go into the Sermon on the Mount and just start looking at all the moral teachings that Jesus is teaching and start thinking that this is just a sermon on self-help, wanting to be a better person, start becoming more moral. That's not the point. The point is the gospel. And so that's why he leads, the, leads off with the Beatitudes and shows us that we're absolutely poor in spirit. We must mourn for our sin. We must be meek. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that only comes from God. Then we become peacemakers. Then we'll be persecuted. But we have to put our faith in the gospel and hope in Christ. And based on the gospel, based on the fact that Christ has given you all of his righteousness... Now you start walking forward as a believer. And so the Beatitudes um, open that up for us. And then you, in the rest of the chapter 5, um, really 17 through 48, Jesus is speaking straight to those who are Pharisees, those who had a misunderstanding of the law. And you can go and listen to it, but there's really six things that he addresses where they had misunderstandings of the law in chapter 5. Um, and he's wanting to correct them and say, and you'll see that kind of at each little section, you've heard it said, but I say... And so he's correcting their misunderstandings of the law. And now as we're going into chapter 6, the next part he's doing here is he's going to talk about the kingdom, but how it relates to religious hypocrisy. And what we mean by that is um, there were things that that the Jews at the time did as righteous religious acts, the things that that, that they're supposed to do. But what was going on is as they were doing them, they were doing it in a very hypocritical way in order that they would receive the glory for it. 
And so Christ wants to uh, Christ wants to talk about that and help them see that that's not what that's not the idea of of being a disciple of Christ. That's not what the idea of being a follower of Christ is. You're not supposed to want the glory for yourself. If you're a follower of God, you want God to receive the glory, not you. And so he's going to address that. And and the reason why if uh, when. Andy read the text. The reason why we did verses 1 through 4 and then 16 through 18, because there's three separate things that he's going to address. And you can see that more than likely it's sectioned out pretty obvious there in your Bible. You can see that in verses 1 through 4, really 2 through 4, um, he's going to address giving. And then in 5 and 6, he's going to address prayer. And then 7 through 15 is just an illustration of how to pray. So we see that he addresses giving and prayer. And then in 16 through 18, he's going to address fasting. And so um, what we're going to do is we're going to cover two of those today. The two things that Jesus talks about where whenever you're doing these things, there's a caution. You, you could do this in such a way where you're going to be hypocritical and want all the glory for yourself. And you shouldn't do that. And so we're going to talk about that in the context of the first, the first one is giving in two through four and fasting in 16 through 18. And the next week, we're going to do prayer all by itself. And the reason why we're doing it all by itself and kind of doing the two is because Jesus also gives us an illustration with the Lord's Prayer, if you're familiar. And there's a lot in the Lord's Prayer. So I really wanted to reserve that second one and the illustration of the Lord's Prayer all for one sermon where it'll just be the entire sermon next week about prayer. Um, and, and really, if you're honest, and you know, this is the place, um, if you're honest, more than likely, 80 to 90% of you would say, maybe even willingly, my prayer life, it, it's just not what it should be. I want it to be this, but it's really not. And so I really want to concentrate on that for an entire sermon next week, and we're going to talk about that. So we're looking at two of the three things here. Now, um, the Sermon on the Mount, and this is from Sinclair Ferguson, he, he points out one, one awesome thing about Jesus, and he says, obviously, if you're a preacher of the gospel, then you need to take note what he does. Um, not that we'll, any preacher will ever be able to preach like Jesus, but what, what the point, some of the, there's three things that Jesus does here in the Sermon on the Mount, and you can see it if you read the entire thing, and, and it's... Um, in its entirety. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, the first thing he does is he has unity, which is, means he begins and he ends with the same thought. He talks about the kingdom of heaven and he's ending with the same thought about, about the kingdom of heaven and entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So there's, there's unity in the entire Sermon on the Mount. The next thing is that there's progression. Each little section in our Bible, but really throughout the entire sermon, there's progression. Each thought builds on the next part as you go all the way through. And one of the last things we see is that Jesus uses illustrations and application. He uses modern, not modern, but for them modern, modern day uh, illustrations for them so that they can understand what he's talking about. And he gives good application, explaining what he means with an illustration and how to apply it in their life. And so um, the entire Sermon on the Mount we can see Jesus giving really a, a masterful sermon. Um, and that more than likely happened over a couple days, not just in one sitting. Um, now, whenever, whenever this was written, Matthew didn't write it with, with chapter and verse divisions. All right, so 6.1 isn't like a whole new thought separated from 548. Um, so we see 548 where he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. So this is really a continuous thought from 548. And you'll notice that 548 and 520 
carry some of these same ideas that they're very similar. 520 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees, everyone looked at them as being very, very righteous. And Jesus is saying, your righteousness must exceed them. Well, everybody thinks they're righteous. How is that going to happen? Because they had a very external righteous righteousness that everyone thought they were. And Jesus is saying, the way for it to exceed that righteousness is that it's not just merely external outward actions, but instead you've had an internal heart change, Beatitudes. You've believed in the gospel. Your righteousness is not ever based on anything you've done, but what Christ has done on the cross based on the gospel, belief in that. And so he says, you, your righteousness must exceed. Now, if you look at 548, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So no one can be perfect no one can have righteousness on their own, as 528 says. Um, and so we know that the only thing that can happen is faith in the gospel, faith in Christ, which we know that he was preaching from 423. And when that's given to us, now we can start living in light of, and, and because we've been declared righteous and we've been declared perfect in Christ, that's very key, in Christ, now that we, can, uh, now that we have that, we can start living in such a way that, that honors him. So verse 48 flows into verse 1. And verse 1 um, is really kind of the, uh, the centerpiece key verse for us to understand verses 1 through 18. Um, verse 1 kind of sends out the big signal. This is what I'm going to be talking about for these next three cautionary acts of piety. And I just cautionary acts of piety means you need to be careful when you do these three things. Acts of piety are just good deeds. Acts of righteousness. We're supposed to do those things, but he's going to say, you need to be careful. He's not going to say, so don't do them. He's going to say, you need to be careful that you're not a glory hound and that you want it all for yourself, but you're going to instead want to give it to Christ. So verse 1 is kind of our, our big, huge um, umbrella over these three sections that kind of starts everything for us. And it says, beware of practicing your righteousness. Now, if you have King James, it might say giving alms. That's just a textual variant. It's probably not correct um, because 2 through 4 actually deals with the giving of alms. And verse 1 really, like I said, serves as the entire umbrella. That's just on a side note. So the really, uh, the, the more precise wording is beware of practicing your righteousness. Beware of doing acts of righteousness. Um, so we're we're keying in on those three things as acts of righteousness. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Why? In order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So one of the things that he's wanting us to see is in verse 1, whenever you do these acts of righteousness, you can't do them in front of other people in order to be seen by them because we're glory hungry. And this is what I mean. I keep saying that. Um, like this past week, this is just a small illustration of my sinfully terrible heart. This past week, and this is just ridiculous, right? Um, this past week I went to the dentist. And maybe you have this, but after I went to the dentist, which is, you know, not a fun experience, but it was just a cleaning. As soon as it was over, he, uh, the, the dentist tells me, she tells me, no cavities. And the first thing I want to do is brag to everybody. That's right. No cavities. Yes. And I'm just so happy. I want to tell, hey, guess what? No cavities. I want you to tell me how awesome. Why do I want that? I mean, all I did is brush my teeth. Like, like that's what you're supposed to do. Um, it's, it's actually bad if you have cavities, but if you don't have cavities, all you did is what you're supposed to do. That's not some huge accomplishment, but that's just an illustration of even in the smallest things in life, every single one of us want glory, even for the things we're supposed to do, like brushing our teeth. 
Wow, good job. Way to brush your teeth, bud. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. I mean, the point is that we're glory hungry. And what he's saying is anything you do as acts of righteousness in order to be seen by other people, you will not have reward from your father in heaven. You will not have it. Um, And then he goes into these three things, as I've said, uh, giving alms, prayer and fasting. Now, these three things aren't just kind of grabbed randomly by Jesus. These are actually the three fundamental acts of Jewish piety at the time. The three things that that Jewish people did as acts of piety, the things that God expected were um, giving alms or giving to the poor, uh, prayer and fasting. And so we can see these three things are are part of what was regular Jewish life. But Christ was very familiar with what had happened with this regular Jewish life. In other words, um, one of the one of the commentaries gave this illustration. This is very much what had happened. There was a a, a campus ministry that decided for students, hey, what we're going to start doing is we're going to start carrying our Bible around around college. And so if we carry our Bible, then you know we'll be following Christ more deeply. We'll have it with us. We'll be able to. Um, when we're ready, be able to open it up and tell people. And so all the, all the people started saying, that's what we're going to do. So it, it got, you know, got popular and they started doing it. And so then what happened is, in order to be more spiritual, uh, the, he's, the, the commentator, I think it was uh, D.A. Carson, he said that uh, throughout the, the next couple of years, as this kind of became a thing for these college guys in this, uh, in this ministry, uh, they started carrying bigger Bibles. And then they started carrying bigger Bibles. And then they started, and so they knew that they were really spiritual and really part of the group because they had these monster Bibles that they were carrying around just to show they're righteous. And this is the exact same mindset of what had happened with these Jewish people who were following God that were giving alms. Whenever they were giving alms, they wanted everyone to know. Or whenever they would pray, they wanted everyone. Or whenever they would fast, they would make themselves look all whatever. And so just so everybody knew, the idea is we want everyone to know that we're doing this act of righteousness. Um, and so Christ is going to uh, address that. And as you see in each one of these sections, as he addresses it, there's really a, a way he addresses it. There's kind of a, se- a section or a, um, a way he does it with four points. The first thing is he does is he gives them a warning not to do this act in order to be praised by men. After he does that, after he warns them, he says, if you ignore this warning, then all you're going to get is the praise of men. Nothing else. Don't just seek the praise of men. But if you do it for the praise of men, the second thing is, that's all you're going to get. And then the second thing he, he do, the third thing he does is that he actually tells them as a Christ follower how they're supposed to do it. How are you supposed to give? How are you supposed to pray? How are you supposed to fast? And then after that, the fourth thing he does is he gives, if you do it his way, he gives you an assurance. An assurance, which is that there's a reward coming from Christ. Now, you'll also notice in each one of these in verse 2, it says, thus when, in verse 5, and when, and verse 16, and when. So he uses this, this, ver- this word, when, which is assuming that you will do it. As a follower of Christ, he's not just assu- thinking that this is kind of an optional thing. He's assuming that you are going to do it. So even those who are following Christ and doing it wrong in the first century... They're still supposed to do it. The answer, like I said, is not just to not do it. You're, spil- you're still supposed to, with your conscience and how you feel Christ is leading you as far as frequency goes, you're still supposed to give to the poor. You're still supposed to pray, obviously, and you're still supposed to fast. And the frequency and the heart behind it is up to you and how often you do it. But it, this win is, is connotating that we should do it. So here's the question that some people will say. Well... If I'm supposed to do it, then um, isn't that legalism? 
Isn't it legalism to say that I'm supposed to do that after I have uh, become a Christ follower? Then I don't have to do things like that. I can just do whatever I want. And Christ is saying, yes, you do. The warning is not trying to keep you from doing it. The warning is against uh, all the commentators kept using this word ostentatiousness, which just means showiness. The warning is against being showy or ostentatious as you do it. And so to answer the legalism question, Sinclair Ferguson says this. Christians mistakenly think that we can simply, quote, do what we feel or, quote, be ourselves when we become followers of Christ. What I don't have to do that. I can do whatever I want. I'm free in Christ now. And he says to live any other way, for example, to live any other way, for example, to set aside definite sacrificial amounts of money to the Lord's work giving or to set aside specific time during the day for prayer. Oh, that just seems legalistic. Certain times. Or to engage in deliberate acts of self-denial as we seek the Lord's face. Fasting is seen as legalism or bondage. Jesus, on the other hand, when he says when, assumes that these disciplines are basic to any spiritual vitality. And Jesus was no legalist. So these things are not just optional deals. And if putting them out and saying these are things that Christ followers should do as basic. It's not legalistic to say because Christ is saying, well, these things are basic. And then we see at the end of each section, and this is how we know that they're kind of, that uh, Matthew's helping us see that there's three of them. You can see at the end of 4B, and your father who is seized in secret will reward you. And then uh, 6B, and your father who's secret will reward you. And then in 18B, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So that will reward you. So you can see that same little sentence at the end. So there's three things he's talking about for us. Now, verse 1 also says, well, I promise I'm going to get to it. There's, there's just two weeks I hadn't been in Matthew, so there's a little setup here. And there's, there's one, more little, one more little problem because we have 516. We have 516 that seems to contradict 6-1. And we need, to, we need to clean that up. I talked about it a little bit when we are at 516, but just want to clean it up a little bit. And it says... Um, 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others. So you're supposed to let your light shine so that they may see your good works. You want to shine so bright so that when people see it, they can see your good works. You want people to see your good works and give glory to the God the Father in heaven. 6.1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. So what is it? Is it do good works so that you can be seen? Or is it don't do good works so that you can't be seen? Um, which one is it, Matthew? You're kind of confusing me or you're contradicting yourself. Well, no, he's not, obviously, because Jesus is talking. Matthew's just quoting Jesus, and Jesus is God, and he's perfect, and he doesn't contradict himself. So there's not a problem here. We just got to look into it deeper and understand what's the problem. Are we supposed to do good works in front of others? Are we not? And the key here behind it all, obviously, is motive. Motive. When you see, um, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, that's showing you that your motive is that you want the glory. But in 5.16, it's really obvious. Let your sh light shine before others so that it may see your good works. And look what it says. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the key motive here is, do you want glory for yourself? Or do you want to give glory to Jesus? And there is there's tons of weight to it behind it. So you can do it in such a way, like 6.1 says, where you do good works and you want all the glory. And that's not good. You will receive no reward. Or, as 5.16 says, 
Do good works. Let your light shine before men in order that they won't give glory to you, but instead they'll give glory to God. And so Jesus is going to go into now to these, these three things and, and hopefully help you all of us see that um, as we do these three acts of piety, we're supposed to do it in such a way where we're not even wanting glory. As a matter of fact, you'll even see language where it kind of says, and you're forgetting yourself that you've even done it. But you want all the glory to be pushed to Christ, none of it to be pushed to you at all. All right, so um, three acts of, three cautionary acts of piety. Yeah, three cautionary acts of piety. Verse 2, verse 2. Here's the first one. Um, The first one is that our giving is to be generous and anonymous. Our giving is to be generous and anonymous. That's that's 2 through 4. Look at the text. Thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So, when you give, assuming that we, we, we will give, when you give to the needy, um, it's very obvious, really, in the whole of Scripture, um, there's just tons of verses that will help us see this, that Christ wants us to give to those who are needy. Um, 2 Corinthians 8, 7, which we've, we covered at one time uh, back in November, we talked about giving. Um, in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, he tells us to make sure that we excel in this act of giving. Um, let me pull over to it. It says, see that you excel in this act of grace. And this act of grace that we've seen in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 6, is obvious that it's giving. And then in verse 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. So what he's saying is, Verses 1 through 6 in 2 Corinthians 8 say, you're supposed to be giving. We want you to be giving. Not only do we want you to be giving, we want you to excel in this act of giving, as verse 7 says. And then in 9 says, the way that we want you to excel in this act of giving is to be a giver like God. God gave His Son so that you could become righteous, to come and die for us, and so that we can have a relationship with Him. That's pretty lofty when it comes to giving. That is a high goal in giving, and that's the way that we're supposed to give. We're supposed to give all we can. So there's a clear, clear um, kind of holistic message from Christ in the Scriptures that we're supposed to be generous givers because God in Christ was generous to us. So we're supposed to be generous, but also, um, you can see, it says, Sound no trumpets... Um, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. So, um, <clears throat> most first century writers, and, and what we can see is that um, there wasn't actually a, uh, a trumpet being sounded. It, it wasn't like the religious t- at the time, the, more than likely it was the Pharisees, right before they gave, actually brought trumpeteers out and they're like, all right, go ahead, hit it. And then they all blow the horn and then he walks over to the Gibby person and he like hands it to him, which sounds like a Monty Python sketch or something. But um, it's really just an exaggeration, an exaggeration here that Christ is using. There's, there's not really much um, real ideas that this is actually what happened. And, and he's using um, quite a bit of exaggeration through this anyway. Um, and he says, but the point is 
to not do the good work so that you can tell everyone and that you can receive the glory. Instead, he says, don't be like one of the hypocrites. Um, and this word hypocrite in the Greek um, in that time was understood that it was, as an actor. It's just another word for actor. And the, and the actors at the time in the first century didn't wear makeup. Instead, they wore masks. And so he's using that idea of Greek acting in the first century. And he's saying, whenever you do that, you're just grabbing a mask and you're putting it on. And that just means you're pretending to be one person. You're pretending to be one, th- one thing. But all the time, you're really something different. Your outward actions suggest that you, he or she, are completely focused on the Lord. However, your inward desires are for recognition. Your inward desires are for the praise of men. Your inward desires are for the glory. Your inward desires could just be, I just want to sin. I'm a hypocrite. I don't want to do what Christ wants. On the outside, I'm going to look like I want. I'm going to put on the mask of Christianity. I'm going to look like I'm a big Jesus follower. But on the inside, I want the glory. Or really, I just love this sin that I'm engaged in. And I'm just going to keep doing it. And nobody's going to know because I'm a hypocrite. I'm an actor. I'm a play actor of Christianity, fooling everyone around. But the problem is, um, you can fool everybody. But you're not going to fool God. Like, that's the biggest, craziest game in the world to think that you can fool everybody when God, you can hide yourself into the deepest cave in the world and feel like no one's going to know, but the, God's vision shines bright in that cave. He sees everything that you're doing. So it's, it's insanity to think that you can hide anything that's going on. So he's saying, don't be like these hypocrites. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They have received their reward. Which is, they've been praised by the others. They, they have gotten what they want. They, quote unquote, sounded the trumpet and they went over to the person and they gave this and everybody sees that they gave and everybody thinks they're a good person. Everybody sings their praises and everybody thinks they're awesome. And he's saying, and that's exactly what you wanted, the praise of others, and that's exactly what you're going to get. But nothing else. You want the praise of man? You got it. But that's it. There will be no reward from your heavenly Father if that's why you're giving. That's scary. In contrast, he's saying that you should do the good work in order not to be praised by others, but so that it's pleasing to, you God, pleasing to God. So how do you do the act of giving? Well, he tells us how to do the act of giving in verse 3. But when you give to the needy, again, when, not if, there should be, in your life, a, a set-aside amount of money. You should not just live where you have no idea how much money you have. Christ has given you a percentage, or a certain amount of money. You, all 100% is His. Um, you have to decide how much you want to give to Him. And with the rest of it, you have to decide how you want to spend it for His glory. Let's just use regular numbers. I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but this is so key. Um, uh, in giving... A lot of us grew up in church and just think, all right, well, what, what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to give 10% to God and the other 90, I can just do whatever I want. It's all for me because I'm his child. In a sense, that's right. But Randy Alcorn says that this 10% really serves as the floor and not the ceiling um, and how much you're going to give to God, which just means according to your conscience, give generously. If you are able to give more and the Lord is leading, um, it's not just how much can I give, but the idea is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. 
I'm going to give, and then there's a little bit more, and man, that's sacrificial. And that's going to, I don't know if I can make it. But here's the thing. You have to be responsible enough to know how much money you have. Don't just fly by the seat of your pants and hope that your ATM is going to give you the right amount that you have. Like, you're a Christian. You've been given money by God. Get a hold of your money so that you can spend it wisely. And the other side of this, you have 90%. It's not like this 90% is just yours. You can do whatever you want. Let's go gambling. Let's go... No, (laughs) that's not the idea. This 90% is still God's. You have to spend it to the glory of God. You have to spend it wisely in ways that glorifies Him. So you're expen- I mean, sure you have to eat. Sure you have to have a house. Sure you have to have things. I, I know that. You have to, you know, you, I want you to wear clothes. Everybody wants you to wear clothes. You need clothes. Um, but the point is, in the way that you spend this amount, it still has to be glorifying to God. It's not like only the 10% has to glorify God. The rest is just whatever I want. No, that's not, that's not how it works. Um, and so, back to verse 3. How do I spend it? But when you give to the needy, assuming you're always going to be doing that, you're going to be responsible enough with your money to set aside amounts of money that you're going to give if you're a member of a church to that church or um, outside of that, maybe you want to help homeless people, support a compassion child. I mean, there's all kinds of other things that you can do and help your neighbors, uh, whatever. Um, that you're going to give to the needy. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, what is that? Again, this is one of those kind of exaggeration things. Um, whenever you do things, you do things with your hands. Like, they work together. They're, they're very much friends with one another. They know each other. They know what's going on. If you're going to lift something, you use both hands and both of them do it. And what he's saying is, um, you have people around you that you're very close with. Very much, they're so close to you that they're just like hands are so close. that. You do things with them in such a way that y'all do it together, just like your hands do things together. And he's saying that those who are just as close to you, just like a left hand is connected to a right, that whenever you do a good work, that those around you don't even know that you've done it. Your left hand has done something, and your right hand didn't even know. Now, I'm not saying keep it from your spouse. That's probably a bad idea. Uh, where's the $500 that we had? Well, I can't tell you. Yeah, I'm not saying that. Um, Clearly, you need to bring in your spouse if you're feeling led by the Lord to give away a a substantial amount of money. However, outside of that, the point is anonymous. Anonymous. Why? Because you don't want the glory from other people. Instead, as verse 4 says, so that your giving may be in secret. Your giving may be in secret. As much as you can, your giving should be generous and anonymous. As secret as you can make it. Because... When you, don't, when you receive absolutely no glory for it whatsoever, no one knows, and as much as you want, oh, I just wish that someone knew so they could tell me, you're so awesome for giving that. Um, your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. That is going to be, and you just got to believe this, you gotta, just got to trust this, the reward that your Father gives you in heaven is going to be infinitely greater than any praise or compliment that someone can give you for giving a certain amount of money to somebody. If you give $100 to somebody and someone compliments you and it makes you feel good, God's reward is infinitely greater than that person's compliment to you. And you just have to trust that. You just have to really believe that God, infinite creator of everything, and you and me and everything, 
is probably going to give a better reward than that 20 second, 15 second, oh wow, great job, that's awesome. Even though it might have been really awesome, you have to trust that God's reward is better. And so that's what Christ is wanting you to see. So the promise is that your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And that's the first of three times that he's going to say that to us. Um, so we need to be sure. Let's be sure of this. When he, when he says your father who sees you in secret will, will reward you. I want you to be sure because you, you need to have a little bit of a heart check whenever you hear that. Um, we are not giving in private so that we will get a reward from God. We are not giving in private so that we will get a reward from God. That might happen, but we are giving in private so that we won't take any glory away from God and we can meet a need. That's why we give in private. To meet a need and take no glory away from God. Not, oh, I know that if I meet this need, God's just going to reward me. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to do it. So God just showers blessings on me. That's still wrong motives. It's, I want to do this so that, and anonymously so that I absolutely receive no glory and that person is just left dumbfounded in awe of Christ's merciful giving and, and, and supplying his need or her need that all they want to do is give Christ the glory. That's why we give privately. is because we want Christ to receive all the glory. And God will reward you. There's not anything that you can do or not do that he doesn't see or that you won't have to give an account for. Um, he says that in Hebrews. Let me read this to you. In Hebrews 4.13, he says this. Um, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So everything you do, good or bad, is seen by him. And he rewards or brings judgment for those things. All right. Um, so here's just some last questions for us as we're wrapping up this, this thing. Um, where is most of your giving uh, going? And is it really concerned with meeting needs and pleasing God and God receiving glory? Or is it more concerned with you receiving generosity, uh, you receiving the glory? You're wanting to earn a reputation for being this really big philanthropist that gives things away so that everybody thinks you're generous. Everybody thinks you're this real huge pious person. Is that why you give? Or is it because you really want the glory of Christ to be known? Not all giving, not all giving is an act of righteousness. If giving is done so that you receive the glory, that you're really proud of yourselves and it's done with wrong intent, then it's not an act of righteousness. Now here's, here's the really good news. The gospel. <laughs> Always the best part. Um, praise God that even though if there are times that you give with wrong intent... If you're in Christ, you are still righteous. That's, that doesn't change. The declaration of righteousness that's been given to you because of Christ does not change. And even with the heart that desires glory um, and desires to have the worship given to you, you acknowledge that. It doesn't change your right standing with God. You're still righteous. But now you repent for that. You confess it as, as sin. You thank God that your righteousness isn't dependent on the acting or not doing that with right or wrong motives. And then you move forward in wanting to be more Christ-like. That's the good news of the gospel. Because every single one of us, whenever we've done an act of righteousness, of giving or whatever, more than likely, we've done it with wanting some of the glory. 
All right, so let's go over to the, this third one, um, and we'll, we'll go through that. I, uh, I preached an entire sermon on fasting, and so uh, on August the 8th, I had to look it up, August the 8th, um, for our August fast that we did last fall. So I'm not going to unpack fasting very much at all. I would just say, if you want to hear, it's an hour. <laughs> go back, there's, there's a lot in there. <laughs> you can download that on iTunes. But um, what I want to do instead is just, as, as we look at 16 through 18, kind of keep it in the context, which is hypocritical fasting. I'm not going to answer all the who's and why's and why and, and all those things, but I just want to keep it in the context of hypocritical fasting. Um, you can see in Matthew 9, 14 through 17, Jesus tells his followers to fast. So we know this, when you fast, don't look gloomy. Matthew 9, 14 through 17 assumes that his followers will fast. Now that he's returned back into heaven, we're fasting for his, his second coming. We want it to come more than anything. So when you fast, don't look gloomy. Don't make yourself look all sad and all down so that everybody comes up to you and says, what's wrong? Why are you so sad? Oh, you must be fasting. You're so holy. Um, instead, don't be like the hypocrites who put on the mask. Instead, they just figure their faces and they, that their fasting may be seen by others. You can already see. There's the warning. They want the glory. And look what he says. Truly I say to you, they have seen their reward. Same thing. Whenever you do acts of righteousness, fasting, um, giving, and you want to be seen, whenever you're pointing every... Oh, I'm fasting. Just want to let you know I'm fasting. I'm, I'm not going to eat right now. I'm fasting. I'm fasting for the Lord. Um, again, and everybody's like, wow, you're super spiritual. You have received your reward at that time, which is they think you're awesome, but there's nothing else past that. The Lord does not reward those kinds of things. I mean, that's just straightforward in the text. Then it says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Um, basically, I mean, I don't think you're going to like literally anoint your head. It's just saying, take a shower and look normal. Take a shower, look normal and keep it quiet. You're fasting so that, you, so that Christ knows and so that you're seeking his face in regard to something. There's a couple times where we see fast. We see in Acts 10, which we talked about two weeks ago, Peter was fasting and the Lord appeared to him and said, um, now go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, they'll get saved. We see another place in Acts where Paul and Barnabas were fasting and then they came and told them that we want you to, the Holy Spirit wants you to go over here. So there's times where fasting is definitely going to lead you. There's illustrations in the Bible about fasting. Um, but the point is, whenever you're fasting, maybe a couple people know, you tell your wife, I mean, if she's preparing your, your meals, you want her to know so she doesn't make this awesome meal for you, and you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to eat it. That, don't, that won't go well at all. <laughs> you want to make sure you do that. Um, so you, you, you fast in a way where you, you anoint your head and you wash your face. You, you don't let people know that you're doing it. It's because it's between you and God. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. By your father who is in secret. Um, D.A. Carson about fasting, or really um, in the larger context of any kind of self-righteous or, or righteous acts that wanting to be seen, he says this, No voluntary act of spiritual discipline is ever to become an occasion for self-promotion. So any kind of act you're doing, you're not doing that so that you can promote yourself. No voluntary act of spiritual discipline is ever to become an occasion for self-promotion. But instead, we have this promise in 18. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He will reward you. We've seen, we've already heard from 4.13, uh, Hebrews 4.13, that everything we do or don't do, He sees and will give us an account. So I just want to kind of close with what exactly um, 
this reward is, what exactly this promise is. You're going to see here as we go through verses 1 through 18. He's going to use the word father ten times in this section. Ten times. And he's speaking to hypocrites and Pharisees who don't know God as father. They don't know God as father. As a matter of fact, Luke 15 kind of gives us a picture. You're probably very familiar with the story, the parable of the prodigal son. The older brother, Jesus is telling a parable, and the older brother is a, the person who is the Pharisee. And when he's speaking to the father after the, older, the younger son comes home, the older brother says to the father, um, he says, I have been slaving for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Pharisees, hypocrites, and maybe you fall in that category, don't see God as father. They see him as slave driver. He throws out the rules. He throws out the commands. And I, as a good slave, never disobey his orders. But I do all these things because that's what I'm supposed to do in order that I can have a right standing with him. That's how I'm going to have the approval of my father. I have to obey these commands that he gives. God is my slave driver, not my father. But as we look here in 1 through 18, Christ is teaching and he's saying, God is your father. God is your father. I don't ever want my children to look at me as slave driver. Now, very sinfully and honestly, I know that they do sometimes. And that's wrong. I don't want my children to think that their father and their right standing with me depends upon their obeying or their disobeying. No matter what, I love them. And so this idea when he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. He's wanting to drive in and help him see, God's your father. He's not the slave driver making commands so that you can have a right relationship with him. There's not a time ever where my children can do anything where I won't gather them up in my arms and give them unconditional love. There's nothing they can do. And he's wanting them to see God is not a slave driver demanding perfection from you. He's given you perfection in Christ. He loves you deeply, more deeply than you can know. And you are not a slave. You're a son or daughter. You can climb up into his lap and be loved by him. He will lavishly love you. So that is the God. That is the Father who will reward you. He's not going to reward you with more duties to go carry out more commands. Instead, He rewards you. He rewards you with eternal life in Christ. With eternal right relationship with the Father. Where He gets all the glory. And this is the greatest part. And sometimes we don't think about this. As He gets all the glory... He adjusts and moves and changes our heart that our greatest joy in life is that He gets all the glory. And so as He gets glory, our affections and our desires and our joy in Him getting the glory increase. We want Him to get all the glory. He's the greatest Father in the world and we want everybody to be adopted in and be our brother and sister. That's the reward. The alternative... 6-1, 
we get the glory and we receive no reward from our Father. That doesn't sound very good. I don't want temporal encouragement, temporal compliments. That totally is lame in comparison to getting to join in with everything that's happening in creation, which is all creation coming around our Father's glory and our ever-increasing joy in His glory. That is world's better. That's what I want. That's the reward that we get to have. That sounds good. So the acts of piety are not things that we kind of run away from just in case we're going to do it wrong so we don't get glory. Instead, we do them and we do them the way that He says in order that He receives the glory and everyone wants to be a child of our Father. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel that we are your child. We are your sons. We are your daughters. And that in Christ, we have been declared righteous and we get to join in with every other believer that's ever lived with making much of you. Our reward is that we get you. The most awesome reality in the world. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray for my friends here, specifically in the realms of giving and fasting and even prayer, which we'll talk about next week, Lord. I pray that you would begin working on their hearts now and thinking through how they can do these things for the glory of the Father, for the glory of Christ, pointing people to Jesus. And Lord, as we're pointing people to Christ, as their only hope that they would put their faith in Christ and become sons and daughters, fellow brothers and sisters with us, and we would all enjoy the relationship with the Father. For all of us, God, where we fall short, where we will admit that day by day we do things, whether it's these three things or anything, any act of righteousness, whenever we do those things and we really want the glory for ourselves, forgive us for that, Father. Convict us of that. I pray that right now you'll press into the heart of me and every person here places that we do acts of righteousness where we want the glory instead of God and that you would convict us of that, that we would repent of that, that we would no longer want the glory for that. Instead, we would want and yet you would give us desires to really not want the glory for ourselves but be excited about you receiving the glory instead of us. That that would excite us that we don't get glory, that no one knows and that you get the glory for it. And that more people join in on becoming Christ followers because they see your glory. And God, thank you for the gospel that as we repent, as we confess, we hope in the gospel and we trust in the gospel that our right standing with you isn't dependent upon those sins that we are committing because we know that we're totally forgiven for those in Christ.
You are so great and you are so glorious to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.